Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, October the 24th. 2024. Welcome to Keen On. Done lots of shows, and perhaps one of the most popular Keen On shows was a show we did, Keen On Dead Jews. Uh, we did a show with the American uh, writer, polemicist Dara Horn. People love dead Jews, uh, reports from a haunted present. It was a really good show. I'm not sure if people love dead Jews, but they certainly love books about dead Jews. Uh, her book has been a huge success. It's got about 1,500 uh, reviews, practically all of them excellent on Amazon. So there's something in writing about dead Jews. What about bad Jews? Uh, we did a show last week with Jerry Starler, a self-styled, I'm not sure if he's a self-styled Jew, but he's certainly a self-styled bad boy. He's a um, he's a pioneer of, of what's called transgressive fiction. Uh, as many of you be familiar with his work, Permanent Midnight. Um, and as a kind of bad Jew, he's, by the way, he's appearing, as my guest is today, on the Miami Book Fair next month, appropriately enough, perhaps, for bad Jews going to Miami. Um, Jerry Stahl wrote a book on doing a bus tour uh, of the Nazi concentration camps, getting on the bus, for example, to Auschwitz. He's written about this in his book, uh, 999. He looks like a bad Jew. He has that manner about him, a big boy. Uh, and uh, what was interesting, I think, about the book and indeed our conversation is that his bus tour to Auschwitz turned him from a bad Jew to a good Jew. He finally found his conscience and his sense of belonging. Uh, this issue of bad Jews is, of course, one that Jews themselves particularly like to talk about, what makes a bad and a good Jew. There's a play about bad Jews by Joshua Harmon from 2013. I personally haven't seen it. And now, appropriately enough, uh, there's a book about bad Jews by my guest today, Emily Tamkin, who, like Jerry Stahl, is appearing... Um, in the Miami Book Fair next month. And she's joining us, not from Miami, but from Washington, D.C. Uh, Emily, bad Jews. What is a bad Jew? Well, as I thank you for having me, first of all. As I argue in the book, or the case that I try to make in this book, is that actually the framing of get bad Jews and good Jews is not the most useful one. Um, bad Jews is a phrase that we've used against one another and, and against ourselves in many cases throughout American history, throughout Jewish history. And what I try to do is make the case that these arguments are ongoing, um, our identities have always been debated, and that rather than focusing on, oh, I'm bad, I'm good, I'm doing it right, I'm doing it wrong, um, perhaps it'd be more fruitful and productive to look at what's meaningful to us, what's significant, what's morally compelling, and I try to use American Jewish history to make that case. You're also the author um, of a book about George Soros, uh, the influence of uh, Soros, politics, power, and the struggle for open society. Soros, of course, is a very controversial man, for better or worse. We actually did a show with the writer Peter Osnos on mm -hmm. Soros. Uh, it's a wonderful book. Uh, 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 
Osnos has uh, edited called George Soros a Life in Full. Of course, Soros doesn't necessarily write or think of about himself as a Jew, but many others do. So, uh, Emily, whether or not Jews refer to themselves as good or bad Jews, non-Jews do. So that's unavoidable, isn't it? Well, and actually, the, part of the reason I wrote the second book is that one of the things that frustrated me in writing my first book was that one of the defenses that you hear when you say, hey, that thing that you just said about Soros is anti-Semitic, is that people would say, well, he's not even really Jewish. Look at his relationship to Israel. He doesn't go to shul. He's not religious. So therefore, it doesn't count as anti-Semitism, as though they, like there was a sort of Jew you had to, like a way to be Jewish that made you a, a legit target of anti-Semitism. Um, and this frustrated me in part because it, I thought it was factually incorrect and in part because I think whenever we hear these things and have a reaction, part of it is about us too, right? Um, and thus the, 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 my villain origin story for writing bad Jews and for exploring uh, how this, this tension between, our, you know, with ourselves and, and with each other um, and with people who are not Jewish exists throughout American Jewish history. Yeah, it's ironic or perhaps not so ironic if you know your Jewish history that a man like George Soros, who, as you say, doesn't necessarily think of himself as a Jew, is seen particularly by his critics as a Jew, and, and, and they view that in a, in a very negative sense. How central is anti-Semitism in your book about bad Jews? Is it something you mostly avoid? Well, I think anti-Semitism can't really be avoided in a book about American Jewish history, and I've, certainly I talk about how American Jews have dealt with it at various points um, in our history and the various ways that we've responded to it. But I think there are many wonderful books about um, anti-Semitism and about hatred of the Jewish people. And certainly the Daryl Horn's book that you mentioned at the top is one. But I think anti-Semitism, although it's about Jews, it's not really a reflection on Jews, right? It's, it's, a, it's a reflection of the people who hate Jews. And it was important to me that a, a book on American Jewish history doesn't center them, but centers American Jews. And so while anti-Semitism is in the book, it, this is not a book about anti-Semitism. It is about a book, first and foremost, about American Jews and our identities um, and how we have, you know, contested and, and debated that. Um, and I should say, like, even so even Soros, to take one example, he has said, you know, as a, as a survivor of the Holocaust, that has influenced my life in this way, or, you know, my, my, my Jewish identity means such and such to me. So although he doesn't give to specifically Jewish causes, he has, uh, he has, you know, interpreted Jewishness in one way that I would argue is as legitimate as any other way. And that's part of what this, what Bad Jews is about. All the different ways that we draw on our rich history and traditions and and try to make sense of it and try to try to lead Jewish lives or lives that are informed by Jewishness in some way. Um, and just, I also wanna say that although we're having this conversation about Jews and anti-Semitism, um, this is a book for American Jews, but everybody has an identity. And I think the sensation of like trying to figure out if you're doing it right, if you're doing it wrong, what, you know, who am I? How limiting is this identity? How expansive is it? That is not unique. I hope readers will not feel that that's unique or limited to American Jews. Well, Emily, it sounds like you want to have your Jewish and eat it, too. I mean, you can't have it both ways. You can't write a book about bad Jews, a history of American Jewish politics and identities, and at the same time say, well, it's for everyone, and I don't want to be stressing Jews, and, you know, everybody has their own right to their own traditions. I mean, this is a book about Jewishness, for better or worse, isn't uh, sure. it? I, I just meant that you, can, you don't have to be Jewish to read my book or to buy my book. That's all I meant. Especially buy it, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> So all you non-Jews out there, you're still allowed to buy the book, Bad Absolutely. Jews. Yes, encourage uh, It strikes me, um, 
Emily, that one of the most profound divisions amongst American Jews is this division between, shall we say, quite religious Jews, the Hasidim, and uh, Western integrated, assimilated Jews, the Woody Allens of the world, we'll come to Woody Allen later, um, both as a bad Jew and as an articulator of American Jewishness. We did a show with Nomi uh, Stolzenberg. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book. It's a really wonderful book. American Shtetl, The Making of Curious Joel, a Hasidic village in upstate New York. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book. I know you, I'm sure you know about the story. What about this division between, shall we say, quote unquote, Western style Jews and the Hasidim? I mean, that was the heart, I think, if there is a heart of Dara Horn's book, suggesting that uh, people love dead Jews when they're like Anne Frank and they're like the sort of assimilated Western style Jews. They don't like dead Jews when they're the dead Jews from the shtetl from Eastern Europe. Um, certainly the tension between the traditionally Orthodox and all other American Jews is one that has played out throughout the last century and, and is still playing out today. Um, I would say two things. I think first that there, you know, this idea that there are religious or secular Jews um, that uh, American Jews have struggled how to make our identity legible to the United States more broadly throughout, throughout American history. Um, one way is to just be like, Americans who happen to pray differently. And one is to really embrace ethnic and cultural difference and distinctiveness. Um, so that's one tension that's in the book. And then certainly, I think one of the things that I try to explore is that, you know, we talk about the American Jewish community. Is there one or are there American Jewish communities? And what binds, for example, is, is there something that binds somebody like me? Um, you know, I'm, I am a reformed Jew. My husband's not Jewish. I didn't have a bat mitzvah. Like what, what, if anything, binds someone like me to a traditionally Orthodox Jewish person? Um, what are the, you know, are there commonalities there? So that is also something that. So, you know, so what did you conclude? Uh, I mean, what do you have in common with you as uh, somebody who married out, um, hmm. who doesn't wear your identity on, on your sleeve or on your head or in your clothing with uh, the people who live um, in uh, curious Joel, mm. the Hasidic village in upstate New York. Yeah, I would say that we do have a shared history. Uh, we have a shared religion, even if we practice it differently. We have a shared heritage. And I think one of the things that I say in the book is that even if there are Jewish people who perhaps don't approve of how I live my life or don't don't consider it to be like legit Jewish version, um, I we live in this time of rising anti-Semitism. Certainly, a, a, you know, more traditionally observant Jews who are perhaps more visibly Jewish are a target of that. And it's on, I feel that it's incumbent on me to also speak out against anti-Semitism, against people I disagree with, perhaps politically or who live very differently than I do, um, and to show solidarity, uh, even if we have profound disagreements on politics and how we live, et cetera. I doubt they would agree, though. I mean, I don't want to speak on behalf of this. No, but this is, yeah. So I wrote this essay for the Jewish Book Council called Pluralism's Paradox. And basically, um, if you are pushing for like a liberal pluralistic vision, which I am, that means that you have to accept as legitimate, as authentic people who won't, who don't think that about you. And you have to kind of make peace with that, I think. It doesn't mean that we're going to be doing Shabbat dinner together or like having Seder together. Um, it just means that I think that they're legitimate and they're authentic and they're Jewish and I will speak up for them. And if they don't do the same for me, that's, you know, I've made peace with that. 
Well, I'm guessing you're the kind of person who speaks up for anyone, whether they're Hasidic or not. Um, I, I don't, you, you talked about sharing a similar history. Mm-hmm. Certainly the Hasidim have a very different version of Jewish history from the assimilated Jews. So when you say sharing a, a, a common history, that's not a perception of history, is it? It's more a, a, a physical reality. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, a certain, a certain set of facts. Obviously, we interpret Judaism very differently. We interpret we have a different perspective on Jewish history, but there are certain things that happened for thousands, you know, going back hundreds of years. And even the last century, like, even if you experienced a different part of American Jewish history, you were both, you both have Jewish families that have been in this place in this time and have been shaped by it, even if it's in, in different ways. Um, So that's what I mean. It's, It's a shared set of facts that we can both draw from differently, interpret differently. But I, I do think that as pluralistic as American Jewish history is, um, one of the things, sorry, as pluralistic as American Jewish society, communities, whatever you want to call it is, we do have this history in common. But how would you respond to someone say, well, it's so vague, Emily. I mean, you might as well say, well, we all have something in common because we're all human beings. Yeah, you could. But I think we have something more in common because we're Jewish. You know, this is this is a big this is a big thing in American Jewish um, life is like, are we still distinctive or are we so assimilated that we're we are not um you know, we're just like any other American. And I, I feel that there's still something that is distinctive about. Well, what is, what do you mean any other American? You mean any other American who's not Jewish, right? Like what, like, is there something that still remains distinctive and Jewish about me compared to a person who's not Jewish at all? Do you think there is? Yeah, I think so. I think I have, you know, I have my family's history. I take Yiddish class. I go to synagogue. Um, I wear the Star of David. But I think even if you didn't do those things, like let's say that you you know, what being Jewish meant to you was eating a bagel every weekend. Like, if that was really meaningful to you, I would say that that is doing Jewishness the right way for you. Well, by my, my wife eats a bagel every weekend. She's not Jewish. Could she claim to be Jewish? No, but is she doing it because it's what her family did? Is she doing it because, you know, she thinks of, she's trying she to connect her? Salmon and cream cheese. I yeah, mean, but if, that, if, you're, if you associate that with your family tradition and your family heritage, then like, why isn't that Jewish? Maybe your wife is taking part in a Jewish practice. And she just I'll have to let her know. Maybe she can change yeah, her religion. What about the, the issue of Israel, um, mm-hmm. uh, Emily? Obviously, it's enormously divisive in the world, but also mm-hmm. amongst American Jews. We've done many, many shows on Israel. One with the left-wing journalist and poet Joanne Mort. Another with a... Daniel Sokach, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He seems to be someone in the center who's bent over backwards to be fair to Israel. He has a new book out, Can We Talk About Israel? Seems to be the kind of book that everybody hates. Um, what is the role of Israel in the history of American Jewish politics and identity? And how divisive is it between, shall we say, conservative and liberal Jews, American Jews? So the, my book looks at the last century of American Jewish politics. So I'll talk about, about that time. Early on in this period, American Jews were quite wary of Zionism because they thought, or many were quite wary of Zionism because they were worried that it would make them, you know, we talked about Jewish distinctiveness. Another concern has been lack of security. And I think especially around the early 20th century with immigration quotas coming in, um, people were worried that this would make them seem not American, like they were disloyal. And then you have World War II, you have the Holocaust, the establishment of the state of Israel. And this really becomes the issue around which a lot of American Jews coalesce, especially after 67 and 73. Israel really becomes one of the defining issues of the American Jewish experience. Um, What we have then is that 
American Jewish politics or the politics of most American Jews, I should say, and Israeli politics go in different directions. Most American Jews vote for Democrats. Most American Jews would describe themselves, I wouldn't say as, as the left, but as liberal. Um, I think Israeli politics today, particularly with respect to Palestinians, are in a different place. And so I think what you have today is especially among younger American Jews, um, more, more comfort criticizing Israel and, and, and a greater discomfort with Israeli politics. And I should also say that although Israel looms so large in the American Jewish imagination, the reality is that fewer than 50% of American Jews have actually been to Israel, which means that in some ways we're having a conversation about an idea and what it says about us in addition to this actual place and these actual people. What about intellectual history, which you really focus on in the book? Um, we had a, a show last week with Alex Wexler, uh, Alice Wexler. Her father, Milton, is a very prominent or was a very prominent Freudian psychoanalysis. And of course, uh, that was very influential in perhaps in earlier in the 20th century in shaping Jewish identity. But Alice Wexler is also the biographer of Emma Goldman, one of the great figures of radical Jewish and European politics. Um, how, how would you make sense of those East European importations of, of Jewish traditions, of psychoanalysis, of socialism and communism? Mm -hmm. How did they play out or have, how have they played out in American Jewish politics and identities? Yeah, I think especially early in the 20th century, when you have these American Jews coming over from Eastern Europe in large number, there's a very strong leftist or socialist undercurrent. You have, you know, you have Yiddishkeit in New York. You have this great, the, the worker circle, as it's now known, the workman circle then, um, you know, this, this profound leftist tradition. As that becomes amassed in or, or joins into American Jewish groups more broadly, some of that is diluted down, um, you know, Jews who arrived earlier tended to be a little more small C conservative. Um, and then in the, the post-war period during the Red Scare, you had American Jewish institutions really quite consciously cooperate with the American government and sort of say, here are the names of people within our ranks who are, who are sympathetic to communists or socialists. In part, this was because they wanted, they didn't want American Jewish politics to be socialist. And in part, it was out of fear, right? This was this, this Anti-Semitism had been at a high point during World War II. Um, this was, again, this tension between how, how secure are we here? And I think what you have today is many, especially many younger American Jews sort of returning to that leftist tradition. And so you have, um, you have more magazines and outlets and groups and organizations that are, that are quite consciously Jewish and also leftist. Um, so there's that. There's also a sort of more conservative intellectual tradition. Um, I talk in my mm -hmm. book about the neoconservatives who started out at least identifying as the left, and then as the 60s and 70s go on, um, really start to associate more with the Republican Party and wonder why more American Jews aren't going with them. Um, so that's another intellectual tradition in American Jewish history. Who, who's your great inspiration? I mean, Emma Goldman or uh, Milton I'm Friedman, shall we say? I mean, given yeah, that you brought up the neoconservative or the, the Chicago School of Economists. Um, I was just speaking with somebody about this earlier today. So I think for many American Jews, the person we hold up is like the great American Jew is Rabbi, um, Rabbi Abraham Heschel, who marched with Dr. King. Uh, this was, I mean, he was a, like a, a, an Orthodox Jew, but also, and also really civically engaged, protested the war in Vietnam, uh, protested for civil rights. Um, and his daughter, Susanna Heschel, who I speak to for the book is now is a 
you know, a Jewish scholar in, in her own right. But I think that sort of um, moral clarity informed by Jewishness, but engaging with, with social ills uh, and struggles more broadly is something that I personally find very inspiring. Others would perhaps disagree. They might bring up the great Jewish-American writer or American-Jewish writer, Philip Roth, uh, in his obituary um, in the New York Times. He was described as a, a towering novelist who explored lust, Jewish life in America. He died at 85 a couple of years ago. Of course, he's particularly famous for his Zuckerman series of novels um, uh, about a, a Jewish boy, or uh, I'm not sure how. Jewish Zuckerman thought of himself, but he was very Jewish. Um, what, is that the other side of the intellectual tradition, Philip Roth, particularly in a male sense, and perhaps can be contrasted with uh, radical women like uh, Emma Goldman? Yeah, I think I think if you want to put it up against Emma Goldman, that makes a lot of sense. I think Philip Roth. I have a I have a lot of respect for Philip Roth. I think he's an incredible writer. Um, I enjoy his novels. However, he is in this book as. Um, as sort of shaping a certain stereotype about Jewish American women, um, perhaps that we're a bit, you know, a bit naggy, a bit materialistic. Um, Not good at sex. I mean, wasn't that his basic point is that non-Jewish yeah. women were sexier? Right, which obviously we take great offense to. Is there to. any truth uh, to that, Emma? Right, no, I, I would have I to push you Emma, that right? <laughs> That was a Freudian. What happened um, no, but he, I think one of the things I talk, to in, uh, talk about in the book is the development of the you know, there's this American dream in suburbia and where, how that is imposed upon men and women differently. And one of the things that Philip Roth did was sort of uh, create a, you know, the archetypal American Jewish man and the archetypal American Jewish woman um, and created these, I mean, in addition to lasting novels and, and these very wonderful characters, also created this, you know, this identity, this, um, this trope that I think some of us, especially more radical women like Emma Goldman, who you talk about, um, sort of took issue with. You think something's gone wrong with Rothian, shall we say, Jewish men? We did a uh, a show with uh, Ken Aletto, who has a new book out on Harvey Weinstein, uh, Hollywood ending. And there's, of course, Woody Allen, I brought up earlier, who also has a kind of Hollywood ending, or hasn't perhaps had a Hollywood ending yet, maybe will one day. Uh, these bad boys, I mean, I don't necessarily want to group Woody Allen and, and Harvey Weinstein because they're quite different. But um, they both live lives of one kind of excess or another. In a way, perhaps what Roth was describing in, in his work or perhaps idealizing was those lives of excess. W what's your take on real Jewish bad boys like Harvey Weinstein and Woody Allen? And um, particularly on someone like Woody Allen, who, whose whole career has been built on his Jewish identity, for better or worse. Yeah. Um, so it's just, I mean, obviously, I'm opposed to sexual harassment and sexual. Well, that goes with us. I think <laughs> on my show. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You wouldn't have been um, invited on the show had you been. Yeah. Um, I think that it's an interesting question. The way in which I think, the way in which Woody Allen sort of used his his persona. Uh, to perhaps paper over some some more uncomfortable truths about himself. You know, there's a lot of age difference in a lot of Woody Allen's movies and the sort of the intellectual man and the younger woman who needs things explained to her. Um, and that's also a part of, like, Woody Allen's films are also a part of American Jewish 
history. Woody Allen is also a part of American Jewish history. And one of the things that I write about in the book is that early on, I have a conversation with somebody and they say, American Jews are neither victims or villains. And this person said correctly, I think, no, American, Jew American Jews have been victims and villains. Um, and sitting with that and being comfortable with that and being comfortable in describing that is something that I was, was sort of challenging, um, but also true. And I think another example, um, who's not Willie Allen, is Bernie Madoff, who, you yeah, know- Yeah, I thought of Madoff. I, I forgot right, the side of him, but he doesn't play on his Jewishness and he just happens to be Jewish. Oh, no, 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 I, I, I really disagree. I think that okay. if you look at who Madoff defrauded and took advantage of, it was other American Jews. It was, and, and I think he used Jewish networks. He, I mean, he he defrauded Holocaust centers and Brandeis, he, he or, or funders thrown to Brandeis University. I think that he really used his American Jewishness to be able to do what he did. Um, it's uncomfortable sometimes to say that because there are stereotypes about Jews and money and we don't want to play on them and further them. But uh, two things. One, not describing the bad things that American Jews have done doesn't, that doesn't exist to humanize us, right? Like no people is a monolith, no people is all good all the time. And the other thing is that uh, as, as somebody says to me in the book, you know, if you don't describe this because you're afraid of what anti-Semites will say, what you're pretending is that what anti-Semites say is controlled by Jews. And actually it's not like, it's not actually, Oh, we're behaving badly. And thus there's a, a conspiracy theory. And thus you sort of need to be able to talk about Woody Allen and you need to be able to talk about Bernie Madoff and people who weaponize their identity. Um, you know, and that's, that's all. And, and, and to discuss that as a part of the history. Yeah. Maybe you should I mean, maybe you should have retitled the book. We need to talk about Bernie Madoff and Woody Allen. I think it's a good point, weaponizing one's identity. Um, we did a show uh, last year, actually it was earlier this year in May, with Charles Delheim, um, a art historian, Jewish art historian, although again, he doesn't wear his Jewishness on his sleeve, but he does have a book out called Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. And when I first saw the book, I was a little nervous in the sense that that's a kind of anti-Semitic trope. Also, that Jews control the art world, particularly the modern art world. And we talked about it. It was an interesting conversation. Um, but he, the reality is, is that Jews have been enormously prominent uh, in the art world. They're also enormously prominent in American business. Uh, mm -hmm. they, shall we call it the Zuckerberg-Sandberg complex, and certainly in Silicon Valley, and Jewish businessmen, Jewish philanthropists, Jewish capitalists uh, seem to be quite prominent. My sense, and I know this is a very sensitive area, Emily, my sense in the, from talking to you is you're trying to sort of normalize American Jews and say, well, they're just kind of like everyone else. And I don't even know what everyone else really means. Wouldn't it be fair to say that there is something exceptional, for better or worse, about the American Jewish story, history? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I actually don't think that I'm saying that, I think Jews, I want to be clear that, like, I think that Jews are human and should be humanized, but I, I do think there's something well, I exceptional. without saying as well. Yeah, yeah, but I, I do think there's something, something exceptional and distinct about the American Jewish story. Um, I think that, you know, there's a chapter in the book called Laboring Jews, which looks at um, Jews in finance and Jews in labor movements and Jews in philanthropy and Jewish poverty. Um, and one of the things that I look about, uh, look at, look at is why so many American Jews are in, or why such a, a large percentage of finance is American Jews, the influence that American Jews have had on American finance. And sort of, if you look at Jewish history going back hundreds of years, what led American Jews 
to Wall Street, and also some of the anti-Semitism that Jews encountered when they got there, even while saying, no, no, this place is great. Like we're, you know, we're, we're it's, it's a very welcoming world. Um, how in reality things were more complicated than that. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I don't want people to walk away from, from this conversation thinking that I'm just saying like, there's nothing special about, I mean, I think there's something special about lots of different types of people, but being an American Jewish woman, um, you know, I, I love being Jewish. I think it's an incredible history. It's a really rich tradition. Um, and it's one that I explore with all its nuances in this in this book. We did a show also um, a couple of days ago with Matthew Delmont. He's a American historian and very distinguished scholar at Dartmouth University. He has a new book out, Half American. It's about the African-American experience in the Second World War. And it's horrific. It's a and horrific narrative of discrimination against black men and some women fighting on behalf of America. And uh, as we talked, he suggested that the one non-black group of people standing up for black Americans during the war were Jews. They saw it because they experienced it. Um, how does that make sense, particularly of this complicated relationship between American Jews and African Americans in 20th century American history. Hmm. I mean, there have been moments where, and we should say that there are, we're speaking now about white Jews, there are black Jews as well. Who's, yeah, but it's Jews. not that many, right? Right, but we're talking about white Jews right now. So there have been moments like in World War II, like in the civil rights movement, where many, um, where, there were, where there were moments of solidarity. But I also think it's important to remember that, um, and I don't say this to be like, you know, progressive, I say this because it's a matter of fact, that for most of American Jewish history, actually for all of American Jewish history, with some exceptions, white American Jews were treated like white Americans. They had they had the rights and privileges under the law. That doesn't mean that we didn't encounter anti-Semitism, white supremacy, oppression, discrimination. It means that under the law, we were treated like full Americans. And so- We being Jews. Yeah, exactly. And so what you have during World War II, you know, as I said, anti-Semitism is at a high point in World War II, like there's discrimination. But after the war, American Jews get to come home and take advantage of the GI Bill and black Americans do not. And American Jews get to move into certain neighborhoods full of other white people and black Americans cannot. And so there's, although American Jews have also experienced discrimination and, 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 and you know, I think our own history at some point encouraged people to stand up for black Americans and to, uh, and to, to stand solidarity, um, there have also been moments where American Jews have very consciously tried to position themselves as white people and say, no, no, we belong here. We don't belong with black Americans. And that's that's also a part of, of American Jewish history. So you're going to Miami. I am, yes, uh, I hope um, there's gonna be a big crowd. I hope some non-Jews, although probably most Jews. Uh, when are you speaking uh, at the book fair? It's gonna be really fun. This, uh, I'd love, uh, I'd love it if you have an opportunity to talk with Jerry Stahl and, and, and suggest to him that he is the quintessential bad, bad Jew turned good Jew. Um, I will be, I am speaking. I'm, I think I'm on the last day, I'm on the 20th. So I hope that many of your listeners, if they're in Miami, will come um, listen to Jerry Stahl, come listen to me. We'll talk about identity, the United States, Jewishness, all of that, all that good stuff um, in Miami, which will be exciting. Yeah, well, thank you. And uh, Stacey Schiff as well, another very distinguished uh, Jewish-American biographer, uh, written a book about Samuel Adams, not a Jew. Um, <laughs> a lot of American Jews in Miami and, and not Jews in Miami, but we don't, we don't hold it against them. 
No, well, even if you're not, if you're a non-Jew, you're allowed to not only buy Emily Tamkin's new important new book, uh, Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities, but go and see her in Miami. I don't know how many non-Jews there are, but maybe they can, maybe they can <laughs> import it from the rest of Florida or from yeah. the <laughs> Well, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. It was a pleasure. Uh, and finally, Emily, um, yeah. congratulations on the new book. It's just out. What else would you suggest people read? Uh, what books about Jews or otherwise is, oh, yeah. are you um, reading? So if you are interested in some of what we've talked about, I would recommend a book by Rachel Cranson called Ambivalent Embrace. It's about how American Jews have sort of worked, worked their way into suburbia and security and stability and some of the hangups they had about that. Um, and I'm right now reading Books of Jacob, which I won the Nobel Prize, I think, last year. It's excellent. And she is not Jewish, but the book deals a lot with Jewish themes and Jewish identity. And, and it's a, a very long novel. Um, but I think that your listeners will simply love it.